1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael, the director of Leadership Bloomington-Monroe County. And today we're going to talk about uh, labor issues that have really sort of brought the Indiana General Assembly to a, a, a halt at this point. We've got a lot of things we can talk about today. <laughs> a screeching halt. <laughs> screeching right.
0: as the tires turn running over to Illinois. <laughs> right. we, ha-
1: we, have, uh, we have two people with us in the studio. Bryce Smedley is here. He's the president of CWA Local 4730. This is the union that represents IU staff.
2: Correct, yes.
1: And we also have Morgan Hutton, Director of ag- Advocacy That's for, for the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce. Uh, she's in the studio and and joining us by phone is Eric Shonsberg, who is a professor of economics at Indiana University Southeast in New Albany. He uh, teaches labor economics. And you may also recognize Eric's name because he was the libertarian candidate for the 9th District U.S. congressional seat in both 2006 and 2008. Thanks, Eric, for being here. Glad to be here. All right. So if you want to join us on the program, you can phone us at 855-0811. And 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington area. Also, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our website. You can certainly go to the website uh, and join us there with uh, conversation, questions, whatever. So this has been quite a wild week. I'm going to turn to uh, Bryce first. we We've The uh, the legislature, I guess, is just to sort of set this up, the, the Republican majority in the legislature has some bills that um, – would um, affect unions in a significant way. And One is uh, the major one we're talking about today is the right-to-work bill, which essentially, and you, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially it uh, says that um, it would prevent, well, it would, it would say that union members don't have to, or workers don't have to join the union to be represented by the union. Y-
2: yes, that's correct. Essentially, it's kind of a redundancy in one sense because people can join, can refuse to join a union already by federal law. Um, and so if a union, if due to religious or political beliefs, <clears throat> you can actually refuse to pay your union dues and you'd, you'd, you'd pay it a different way only for the collective bargaining aspect of it, but not for any of the political part of some unions engage in. But essentially it, it basically allows, not as a condition of work, it allows people to uh, seek employment um, without having to actually join the union. But the union, if it does exist, actually covers all employees. So it unfairly puts the responsibilities of collective bargaining and all the other issues that come with labor relations for um, state employees are here at IU um, on the shoulders of just a few. So here at Indiana University, uh, employees can either choose to join the union or not join the union. So um, what we often see at IU is we have people who join the union when they're in distress. They need help. So they'll have a problem at the workplace. They were not a union dues-paying member. And whether they are or not, we will represent them. We'll send stewards out. Um, We may actually have to pay for legal fees. We'll take it to arbitration. But they don't actually have to collectively put in uh, any other salary to these efforts. So right-to-work, essentially what it really is is uh, right-to-work for less, um, undermines – it's a union-busting tactic that really takes away – it minimizes the – Effectiveness of unions um, in all kinds of areas. Mm-hmm.
1: So, the union workers who are who don't who choose not to join the union, do they still have to pay? The union? It, I mean, that's
2: if it's a condition of employment, and and they and they don't want their union dues to go to say some of the political activism of the union, they can pay a different way. Um, they basically, uh, and I have it written here, they basically set it aside to just they want their money just to go to. The collective bargaining aspect; mm-hmm. um, they would still have to pay that part, um, but they don't. But any money that the union had spent on activities that they don't agree with, they'd be reimbursed. Okay,
1: Eric, um, could you give us your take on right to work laws? Uh, well,
3: of course, it would ex- extend the freedom further. So, if if you uh, don't want to pay for the collective bargaining, you'd have the the right to do that under right to work laws. Um, you know, in labor economics, we describe a union as a as a cartel of suppliers, uh, like OPEC uh, provides, uh, you know, it's a group of suppliers who bind together looking for a higher price. And so uh, cartels are effective for those in the cartels. And it's not surprising that those in labor markets want to form those and uh, and keep the monopoly power as tight as possible. So right to work does undermine that, uh, the, the functions of that cartel. And um, so it's un- certainly understandable where Members of the cartel would not like that to, uh, to go through.
0: Mm-hmm. Eric, what's the libertarian uh, take on this?
3: Uh, they would support uh, the right to, uh, to, uh, to form unions, but not the right to use legislation to uh, enhance that power.
0: Thank you. Okay, well, I
1: should uh, back up just a step in case uh, any listeners are not familiar with what's been going on. Since the the Republican majority has introduced this bill and some other bills that uh, that would would greatly reduce the collective bargaining power of teachers, uh, the Senate or the uh, Republican House Democrats have left the chamber and they've basically shut down the House because there's not a quorum. Um, they've been in Illinois. Um, we've been in correspondence with Peggy Welch. We're hoping maybe Peggy will call in later today. We're not sure uh, to talk to us about what's going on there. Um, so it's become you know, a huge issue in the state. Morgan, what's the chamber have to say about this?
4: Uh, Well, actually, on this issue, um, the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce does not have a position on right to work. Um, We haven't weighed in on this issue and haven't been one of the chambers that's pursuing this legislation. So uh, when we were um, contacted to participate... Um, today and and thank you for this opportunity to do so. Um, it was under the assumption that that we would be a voice that was you know in in favor of um, the, the right to work laws um, and you know there's a a common misconception that um, you know local chambers are connected or you know answer to or are part of you know the Indiana Chamber of Commerce or the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And um, that's an important distinction uh, because local chambers and our chamber um, are separate entities from, you know, all those other organizations. And we have local decision making uh, processes. So um, while other local chambers and the state chamber have been been pursuing this, um, it's not been something that's been identified here at our chamber um, as a key issue to work on this year. So. Um, I think that's
1: a, that's a really good distinction to make, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I know Kevin Brenninger, the, the state chamber president, has been um, an advocate of right-to-work laws. Right. And he said, I have a quote from him that says, um, this was a good beginning of a conversation about very important public policy question on a piece of legislation that we believe is in the strong best interest of all Hoosiers. That's the state chamber's
2: position. Right. Yeah, and, and I think what you'll find in states that have right-to-work legislation, they get paid less. About $5,500 less. Another good quote um, from Martin Luther King on this very topic was, in our glorious fight for civil rights, we must guard against uh, being fooled by false slogans like right to work. It provides no rights and no works. Its purpose is to destroy labor unions and the freedom of collective bargaining. Uh, And he basically said that, you know, he demanded that this fraud be stopped. And this was in 1961 when he was speaking on right to work legislation. There's a clear case that when you don't allow employees When you divide employees, you don't allow them the right to collectively bargain and stand united. You undermine them. Now, it was just called a cartel. I think that's a pretty strong word. Um, Unions are democratic. We vote. We vote for our leadership. And in our particular union here at IU, as president, I don't get paid. We're volunteers. We sacrifice hours to really work with all employees, whether they're union paying or not union, when they're in distress and they need help. And so I think that there's a lot of benefits Allowing state employees and American citizens to collectively bargain for their needs, livable wages, safe working conditions. Mm-hmm.
1: Eric, so um, I, I'm assuming that you would be that you would advocate for right to work laws. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So, you know, why are, why are they the best way for a state to go? And, you know, Bryce talked about, um, about how they drive wages down. I know I was looking at several things on, online today, and, you know, you can find studies that talk about economic benefits in right-to-work states, um, and you can find studies that certainly say that it drives wages down. You know, from your, um, you know, your labor studies background, you know, what do you find?
3: Well, the, the cartel thing is just by definition. I mean, I know it's a strong term, but that's part of the point of it is that people don't usually think of a union as a cartel, but it, it is that by definition. It's, a, it's a, a group of suppliers who do what they do, and the fact that it's democratic is uh, not as interesting, I guess, but not doesn't really change the effect. And we see the same thing in the NCAA, right, where the basketball players uh, or where the schools have a, a cartel arrangement in dealing with athletes. And uh, the NCAA has an incentive to keep that cartel together, and they punish people who get out of line, and they want that monopoly power to be as strong as possible. So there are even times to have cartels, but they are what they are. So in terms of the effects of it, I mean, you know, the wage growth, um, again, wages are, are good for those in the in the group. Uh, the other side of the coin is look at economic growth in the states that have a right to work, and that uh, tends to be stronger. So, um, you know, is is having the uh, arrangement effective? Is is uh, bidding up wages uh, good for the economy? It's certainly good for those in the group, it, but uh, it's hard to imagine how that's good for society as a whole.
2: Well, you could definitely say that in states that have um, bargaining rights, um, you have more employees who are insured. Um, you have uh, higher wages, um, less poverty. Um, and so I think, really, It's really great for the worker. I mean, that's the product we sell, Um, and it's really the only thing that allows us to come together and make sure that people get the benefits that they deserve um, for working.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, Kevin, don't you think it could be, or or Eric, I'm sorry, couldn't don't you think it could be argued that economic growth is going great guns in China because we're sending our jobs over here? But I would question their quality of life for their citizens.
3: Well, China (laughs) and (laughs) Indiana is comparing apples and rocks. I mean. Uh, so I don't I don't know how far I'd go with that kind of comparison, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, if you look at benefits, you look at uh, wages, we would expect them to be higher in places that have been very strong in recent decades. I mean, if you look at, you know, Michigan and Illinois, places that have had tremendous manufacturing and great jobs and on and on, I mean, they've been very strong, but that's that's fading. And, you know, another, another piece of this is it makes, you know, where the wages are bid up artificially, you've got... Uh, less and less competitiveness for those industries, and we've seen, with increased globalization, we've seen those industries continue to struggle. So the private sector unionization has really just continued to drop the last 50 years, and so those industries have really uh, dropped. And we've got the Rust Belt, we've got the problems that, that go with that. So uh, I can see why they want to hang on to that and and do that as much as they want. But there's also the competitiveness angle both within the country, you've got more and more regional competition where companies can move from Michigan to Mississippi, uh, and you've got, of course, international competition famously where,
1: uh,
3: you know, artificially high uh, wages and benefits, just you're not going to be competitive in a a global environment.
1: Let me follow up on that just quickly. Um, Eric, to have you explain that just a little bit further. So you're basically saying that in states that have a right to work laws that it's more attractive for businesses to move in.
3: Sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the, the flip side of the of the the union thing, again, you can see why unions want this. But from the firm's perspective, of course, they don't want it. I mean, just being objective, the firm's not going to find this an attractive trade. And so, yeah, all things equal, they're going to want to go to states that have right to work.
0: Doesn't sound like apples and rocks to me, but whatever you say.
2: But you, Well, I mean, one point is here is, I mean, I can understand why firms want to go to Mexico. Um, you don't have to deal with unions. You don't have to deal with minimum wages. You don't have to deal with a lot of things. 22 of the states that have right-to-work legislation in this country are some of the poorest states in the country. And a lot of their employees suffer under this kind of legislation. Um, You know, I think it's American principle to allow people to collectively organize and bargain for what they have to offer, what they sell, essentially their labor. Um, And so, you know, when you push right-to-work for less legislation, you're basically asking the employee to take home less, but you're also allowing your shareholders to take home more.
1: All right. Our phone numbers are 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area, wfiu.org slash noon edition if you want to go to the website and join the discussion. We have a phone call, and it comes from Stan. Stan?
5: Hi, I have two questions. One is, is there a, a, a national sense that a person who is employed full-time uh, should not be earning money below the poverty line? And two, if individuals cannot collectively uh, bargain for their position, then manufacturers and firms should also not be allowed to form consortiums and uh, groups. Uh, those are the two questions I would pose.
1: Eric,
3: yeah, I mean I agree completely. Car- I mean the cartel thing is not just is not just uh, you know the local. Uh, Forty-seven thirty, or what, you know, whatever we're talking about, cartels. You find them among doctors at the AMA. You find it with uh, orchestras. You, you find it uh, with corporations uh, doing all, using the government to enrich themselves at the expense of other people. So, I certainly don't mean this to be a, a you know uh, one a scene uh, as the one thing I you know get my jollies uh, you know, banging on all day. I mean, there's all <laughs> kinds of uh, efforts to use government to enrich some at the expense of others. So, and the poverty piece of this, I think, is very important when. So at the poverty line i mean there 's a lot of other policies that have a lot more impact on the poor than this we 've got uh, you know payroll taxes that take fifteen point three percent of every dollar earned by the working poor in the middle class and like it 's hard to get anybody to talk about that at all but that 's the most devastating policy we have, uh, and it makes you know issues like this pale in comparison
1: mm-hmm. Morgan, from uh, your standpoint what what do you see that that drives companies to want to come to Bloomington? I mean do you hear a lot about Uh, you know, the strength of unions or about the workforce? And what are the things that that you hear?
4: Well, you know, we we have a lot to uh, offer in this community. Um, And Indiana is a state. You know, we have a pretty favorable overall business climate. Uh, You know, we have um, a great quality of life here. Um, You know, we have a talented uh, workforce. Um, So there's a lot of, of... components that that draw businesses in here however you know it is a very very competitive um competitive market and we're competing in bloomington with uh you know uh, locations uh, across the country and and globally. So, um, you know, it's important to continue to uh, build that competitive edge. Mm-hmm.
1: When, uh, <clears throat> as we mentioned before, the state chamber has taken a position that it, it favors right-to-work legislation, but the Bloomington, Greater Bloomington Chamber has not taken that same position. Right. Do, you, do you discuss this in your your meetings and say, well, you know, should we get out front of this issue or should we just...
4: Stand back. You know, as um, through our process of, you know, each year we develop a legislative agenda, uh, you know, this just wasn't a topic that we were hearing a lot from our members on, Uh, you know, it wasn't um, discussed a lot by our volunteer leadership as, you know, an important issue that's, um, you know, specifically impacting. Um, you know the Bloomington business community right now I mean you know it can be argued that y- yes, this issue affects everyone, but uh, you know we try to focus in on um, you know those issues mo- uh, you know most important here locally, and so um, you know it just it hasn 't um, you know received a, a great deal of discussion mm-hmm. you know at our local chamber, I think. You know, if we, you know, the issue's starting to build up, you know, there's a lot of media attention to it. And, you know, if it's something that we start to hear from our members on, you know, I think it would be a, an important issue that we would want to go out and, and you know, poll our members, uh, you know, do kind of a survey thing to see, you know, if they think that our role should should be a little bit different in this mm-hmm. issue.
1: You know, the next, uh, I guess the next step of the political process is that the governor uh, basically said to the Republicans and the... House and Senate. We want, I want you to pull these bills because, and he he said um, frequently since then, whenever asked, well, this was, you know, it wasn't something that people campaigned on. It wasn't something that people were expecting. It's not the right time uh, for this. Eric, as a, a political observer, did that surprise you that the governor would step up like that?
3: No, I think, I think that's uh, along the lines of what Morgan was just saying that, you know, you look at right to work, it, it, it's, a, it's a piece of the puzzle. But, you know, anyone who thinks that that legislation is going to suddenly make Indiana, you know, much, much more competitive or something, you know, they're fooling themselves. It's a piece of the puzzle. It's, it's something that's, a, you know, a minor uh, help probably to the, the growth of the economy, that kind of thing. But it's just not a major thing. It's, and, and so it doesn't surprise me that Governor, Governor Daniels, uh, had that position I, I think there was some political wisdom in that uh, in saying it's just not something he wanted to fall on a sword over and I I suspect that's part of where the chamber is going right now too that it's just not it's not that big of an issue and uh it's going to get people very riled up and you know, it'd be nice to have it. I mean, that might be. I don't know if that's their position, but it's just not worth. You know, they've got to make decisions about their scarce resources, and I could easily imagine where they would say, "You know, it's just not worth our our energy right now to to focus
1: on that." Mm-hmm. And, and Bryce, why why is this like such a hot button issue? With-
2: well, I think for for several reasons. I think that public servants and teachers, in particular, have. Basically feel and, and they have been demoralized by society. Um, we blame teachers for a lot of things across the board uh, student failure, uh, waste of money and I think that this was one of the last things that say now you're after all this demoralization that 's going on in our society, now you want to take our way our right away to at least collectively bargain um, to to take that away as well and I think that the you know the Republicans in the state of Indiana and in Indiana and in Ohio and other places are doing this. It's a way to, to um, I think, it has political implications on local politics, state politics, national politics. To really go after the Democrats and maybe attack some of some of their more ardent supporters who are typically, you know, unions. Although in our union we have Republicans and Democrats, um, and I think in a lot of unions you have the same thing. But there's this conception. I mean, and we when we'd be willing to support anybody who who really favors collective bargaining and the right for employees to unionize. I mean, we do not adhere to one political party or the other. But I think that there is a perception that these unions are a threat to their political interest. Um, And you have to really look who's behind sponsoring some of these candidates who are pushing right to work legislation. And you'll notice it's the Koch brothers, for one, as one example. And part of the right to work legislation in Wisconsin is actually in this law is to sell off um, energy companies the state currently owns without putting it up for bid. So without actually asking for a bid. And so you see this all kind of gathered together and this kind of attack on workers, I think it just people are fed up. Um, and I don't know if this is going to be great political fodder for the Democrats or the Republicans, but it has really gotten people really upset that you should not take away um, groups of people's rights to collectively bargain for the interest of of their interest, essentially.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, we have a phone call. It comes from John. John?
6: Yes, uh, <clears throat> I wanted to direct listeners um, to a great website, www.badforindiana.org, which uh, supports um, the points that Bryce Medley is making, and this is a very well-researched website of information from a former IU Labor Studies professor. Um, and uh, I want to say that uh, there is there are facts on that site having to do with uh, what is already uh, legal and I- illegal to do and also what the facts are in terms of studies of uh, the effect of so-called right-to-work laws on the economies of the states that adopt them. And because those studies show that um, standard of living declines, and of course, uh, that, that, because that's going to, infect, to affect the entire community, I think it is not responsible for the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce to simply remain silent on this issue. What would be the responsible thing, and what, what I would encourage all of the chamber of local Chamber of Commerce members to do is to, is to ask their leadership to organize and co-sponsor an educational forum presented by Dave Williams, this former labor studies professor who has put together the information on the website badforindiana.org have him give a presentation, he's got a great powerpoint presentation and after having been exposed to the facts and having uh engaged in aggressive question and answer with Dave Williams, then decide what the responsible thing is for our community. That is to say, stay silent and be a silent silently complicitous with the state chamber or to to, to take a, a responsible position vis a vis the community. Finally, uh Mr schonsberg is Professor schonsberg uh, I think it uh, clearly is not pointing to to studies that he is naming to uh, bolster his positions. He seems to have a particular libertarian ideology, and there are things that quote-unquote make sense, common sense to him, given his allegiance to that ideology. But in fact, he needs to look at the studies and see what the studies show. And also there are um, there are contradictions from even a libertarian point of view with respect to uh, uh, supporting so called right to work laws because those laws would have the government interfere in a, a relationship between an employer and a group of employees who decide themselves on the conditions within that workplace, number one. Uh, and that's, uh, and, and secondly, From a libertarian point of view, unions, as Mr. Smedley has already said, by law, are required by law to represent people who are not part of their organization, and to expend resources of time and money to represent people who are not even a part of their organization. Now, if Mr. Professor Schonsberg were really being even-handed from a libertarian point of view, he would have said in the same, at the same time that he talks about support for Right to Work that he doesn't support that legal requirement on unions to represent people who are not even members of their organization.
1: Okay, John, thanks for your comments. I'm going to let uh, Eric Schonsberg respond.
3: Okay. Uh I don't think it's a particular particular libertarian ideology to not be excited about cartels. So I don't think, you know, this is econ 101 stuff. Uh cartels and its different functions, monopoly power, good for those that have it, not good for those that don't. So uh that's not a, a libertarian thing or a particularly ideological stand. I do agree with the caller on that last point that if if uh, unions are required to represent non-union workers and that should not be a requirement if uh you have right to work and they 're not paying dues, and the union should not be required to represent them. That was not the case when I was in Virginia and worked for a union uh, company. I was non union uh, working for a grocery store and they did not I mean they certainly bargained for me, but they did not represent me uh, and as far as I know, they were not required to represent me so it 's not about the right to collective bargain because they would still do collective bargaining it 's really about the strength of the ability uh to, to engage in collective bargaining but the you know a group of workers would still have the right to do that it just would be uh, the ability to do that would be undermined if you've got workers who want to opt out of the cartel
1: all right. We're going to take a break. You're listening to uh, Noon Edition. We're talking about right-to-work laws and uh, other labor issues in the state right now. Uh, if you want to join us, please uh, get on the phone, 855 811 877 285 WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is the website. You can go there, too. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our three guests today, Bryce Smedley, the president of CWA Local 4730. Morgan Hutton, Director of ag- Advocacy. I've Everybody on has that a hard time twice. with that
4: one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> for, for Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce and Eric Schonsberg, a professor of economics at Indiana University Southeast in New Albany, among the courses he teaches is uh, labor study or labor, labor economics. Uh, if you want to join us, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or you can also Email us uh, through our website, as one of our listeners has done, wfiu.org slash noon edition.
0: Right. This is a comment that came in actually before the break. Uh, We're just now getting around to getting it on. Um, Kevin says, right-to-work laws are just giveaways to giant corporations who are really more like cartels than unions. If you like weekends off, forty-hour work weeks, sick days, medical benefits, overtime pay, family leave, and protection from workplace prejudice and other common workplace practices that we all take for granted, thank a union.
2: That's a great point. I mean, that's an excellent point, and that's and that's really to keep in to what really what is collective bargaining. It is much more than about wages, um, although you could say that women. Um, uni- unions to benefit women. Uh, women who are union members earn 30%, 34% more. Um, Hispanic union members earn 50% more. African-American union members earn 29% more than their counterparts who are not in unions. But we do a lot more than just wages. We, FMLA, HIPAA laws, work relationships, bullying in the workplace. Uh, every day we get calls from members and non-members where we go out as stewards and we protect the interest of employees interpret policy, um, and if there are infractions or people are being treated illegally, we go out and we represent them, regardless of their union uh, allegiance or not. Um, And so I think that was an excellent point, that collective bargaining has huge implications across the
1: entire workspace. All right, we have a phone call from Dan. Dan?
7: Yes, um, I would like to object to Mr. Schomburg's uh, uh, pejorative language in a civil debate Um, I'm 67 years old. This is the first time I've ever heard of a union called
3: a cartel. Okay, well, how would you define a cartel then? I mean,
7: we don't, it's simply our civic accept that we accept unions for what they are. Now, to call them a cartel is to change the debate, and um, it's it's unproductive and it's insulting.
3: But how would you define a cartel?
7: Well, we, we have historically defined uh, the oil, co- oil companies as a cartel, the oil suppliers.
2: Well, and and drug dealers and a whole bunch of, bunch of
7: negative of things. things. The definitions that we accept and work with, you see, sir. And to, make uh, it, and you, to use pejorative language, it changes the debate.
3: I understand the negative connotations of the term, but uh, the term is completely okay, good, accurate
7: good then let's not use it sir that's a civil that's what we call civil debate
1: all right I thank think you. Th- thank you for making the point and uh, Eric, thank you so i, I wanted want to ask um, Bryce about you know what I think one of the issues that maybe has gotten uh, some of the Republicans riled up, maybe some other people riled up is you know the, the economy's in really a a bad way, and I think that perhaps you know I know that I know locally you know we 've seen some public employee contracts that have been i would say much more attractive than private industry has been getting in the last few years. Um, local police contract was just signed a firefighter contract was signed there multi year um, with raises included um, in the local school debate we 've written a lot about the fact that the uh, the that 30 minutes of school time was bargained away years ago in exchange for for money. Um, and yet, you know, we're in a time when a lot of workers are seeing, you know, furloughs, pay cuts, layoffs, a lot of things like that. So, so there's sort of this us against them kind of thing with public workers and private workers that has emerged, I think, in a in a group. Maybe it's a small group, and maybe that's driving part of this debate. And I just wanted your reaction to that.
2: Well a couple of things. I mean I think everyone who lives and works in this economy realize we're in hard times. Um, but it's hard to sit by and to go after public employees, teachers, and uh, use them to pay for other things. For instance, um, if we're going to give tax breaks to the wealthiest Americans in this country, um, then we shouldn't turn around to teachers and other public servants and say, well, we want you to pay for those tax breaks. Uh, figures, just, figures just came out earlier in the week about how much people who make 1% in this country has the distance between them and middle class since 1979 and it's huge police firemen um, who by the way in Wisconsin weren't are not even a part of this debate Um, they have been exempted from this it's just teachers and other public servants Um, these are people that do a have a a really important function in our society especially teachers um, all of them really um, who are being paid or compensated for their labor to educate our youth And I'm an advocate that says we need to actually do more for these individuals and pay them more. There's no reason – you know, in Wisconsin, the average salary for a teacher is $51,000. I believe that we should be going the other direction. We should invest in these sorts of public servants and bring up the wages. And I also believe that companies, private industries, should look at what we're compensating public employees and also fairly pay their workers – um, for the work they do. Um, and we've seen we've seen the, the, the private industry leave our country um, to places like Mexico or to invest in places like China. And let's and you know that they're not the United States. They're also an economy in their own right. Um, and I think that undermines what we do here. And so I just don't buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to fairly compensate people. We need to allow them to collectively bargain. And rather than reduce their salaries, we need to increase their salaries. Do you think, um,
1: I mean, in this, in this economy, I mean, has it changed the, the, the negotiation process? I mean, do you think it's tougher to negotiate in, a, in an atmosphere like this? I think it is tougher to negotiate. But I think that
2: unions and other organizations who are, are, are willing to negotiate openly, we're willing to make sacrifices. I know in Wisconsin in particular, the unions have agreed to a tax you – know, to, not to a tax, to a, a pay cut, um, that they're willing to make concessions. We are all in this together. We are willing to make some of those concessions, but we're not willing to sign away everything that we fought for um, for, for decades.
1: Well on, on a, and Morgan's very familiar with this but in a, in the local economy General Electric is staying in Bloomington and actually adding jobs and that's been widely heralded as a sort of a new relationship between business or, or labor and management because there were some pretty steep concessions for new employees at at GE I know uh, Rich Trump goes uh, you know a major labor leader in the in the country has sort of pointed to Carvin Thomas, the union leader at GE, and and the GE folks, uh, management folks, as a model for the way mm-hmm. unions should work. And I wanted to get your reaction to that, because the GE workers, I mean, they, they saved a lot of jobs. There are a lot of people who are going to be employed. Um, as Morgan heard the other day at, at the BEDC meeting, there's, what, $50, $70 million in...
4: Right, a huge uh, economic impact locally. Locally. With that investment. Uh, yeah, that's just absolutely great news
1: so but yeah. from a from a union standpoint, is that a good thing or a not so much well i can 't speak to, to that case uh, in particular, right. but but I think the
2: important thing is is that we 're willing to negotiate we 're willing to work, obviously states and counties are willing to offer tax abatements for companies to come build um, you know, uh, and reduce their taxes, so we <coughs> at least have those jobs. We are also as union organizers we 're willing to negotiate openly. And do what's right, right first for the worker, and two, for the, the mission of the organization or a private entity. I know at IU, um, we, we really respect our relationship with the trustees, um, with human resources. And at times, we are asked to make uh, sacrifices, and, and we're willing to do that. We want to keep people employed, but we don't want to necessarily keep people employed and pay them unfairly um, and, and allow them to work in unsafe conditions. I mean, the employee is our first priority. Um, but we also don't want to see jobs leave the area. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Our phone number is again, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. 811 877-285-9348 and WFIU.org slash noon edition.
0: The um, cartel question is an interesting one, and so I asked our uh, producer to go uh, look it up, and one of the common definitions is a group of parties, factions, or nations united in a common cause, a block. So I think, you know, maybe if we take the connotations of, you know, we always hear oil cartel in such a negative yes. uh, light, I think if we just use the word as it's really strictly defined, which is a block of, of either... Organizations or individuals working together for a common cause, I think we can kind of diffuse this. Uh, well,
2: I, I, would, I would just make one point. Um, what's nice is that uh, you know, Eric is in labor studies, and that's his field. Well, I'm also a Ph.D. student in social linguistics, so I kind of have the background information on the power of words. Um, Cartel—that may be one definition of it, but words have multiple definitions. But normally, when it's used to define a group, he hasn't called it the management a cartel yet. But he may, um, but normally it has a negative connotation, and words are interpreted different by the speaker and the listener. Um, and that's why I'm in the field of social linguistics as well.
0: I said it was one definition. Yeah. There are others right. that are more inflammatory.
1: All right, Eric, go ahead.
3: What does the field of social linguistics say about unions who refer to themselves as the workers rather than other people who work as well? I mean, usually they opt, co-opt that term, the term worker, uh, to only refer to union workers.
2: Well, I, again, I think that uh, the, the, the speaker who chooses to use whatever words can, has multiple definitions. I mean, uh, people like James Gee would say that words, people and how they use words can be understood uh, differently by how they're atta- uh, um, and how they're used, and so the caller we had before, I think, I would be in the same opinion of him. But every time I've normally heard the word cartel, like the drug cartel, I think of things that are very negative, negative. and that's just uh, that's that's society. I mean, uh, you may see it as something totally different, um, but that's the power of words—how we choose to explain things.
3: I think that's why unions use the term "workers" to describe themselves and not other workers. It's the same kind of use of rhetoric, I think. If we can go back to Bob's question, yeah. I think it was a great question about the recession. And I think that is a real public relations problem for unions because clearly the, you know, the numbers are very clear on this. That the public sector uh, has done relatively well in terms of employment and in terms of compensation. And there have been some cuts here and there. But, I mean, compared to the private sector, the public sectors where unions are strongly representative have done – really well, and especially in a in a time of tight budgets at the state level, about 40 or 50 states are really struggling. You know, when you have um, union workers doing relatively well, when you've got union uh, legislation like project labor agreements and prevailing wage laws, which cl- clearly add to the cost of things, then in a tight budget, I think that's just a really tough, that's a relatively tough sell. Uh, for the unions to be successful at, and so I, th- I think their job has become a lot more difficult in these uh, in these tight times, and even in the private sector, the GE example is very interesting. We see that sort of thing as well, where there are compromises by unions. Many times, the compromises are at the expense of newer workers. So they'll preserve, uh, you know, nicer wages for those that are grandfathered in, but any newer workers come in come in a much lo- uh, come in at a significantly lower compensation level. I know that happened when I was at uh, Safeway as well. So. Uh, the bidding down of uh, of wages is interesting to see in a in a union context.
1: Mm-hmm. Any response?
2: Bryce? Well, again, I think when you're asking people to work for less, right, to work for less, um, yeah, you're going to make money. You're going to make more money. Um, and I think that this is what this is about. You shouldn't go to the middle class and assault the middle class and reduce wages. Um, I I believe we need to promote the middle class. And a lot of union members are in the middle class, and I'm proud to say that. I think that is an awesome quality of unionization in this country. Um, And when you have right to work for less legislation throughout the country, it brings wages down. It hurts families. Um, And we have seen the irresponsibility of our government and the private entities who have abused the housing market in our country, who have run people out of their houses for foreclosures, who have undermined this economy and who have gotten huge tax breaks. So when you pass right to work for less legislation in this country, you are basically going to allow these CEOs to take home larger bonuses um, and abuse the system to their benefit. These are common middle-class Americans banding together to say, we believe in the right to collectively bargain and to collectively bargain uh, what we have to sell, and that is our labor. And it is just a fundamental differences that I think that we have here. But... I, th- I see unionization as supporting middle class, and that is what is shrinking in this country, And right to work for less legislation assaults it. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to uh, remind our listeners we have about 10 minutes to go, so if you want to join this conversation, please uh, hurry up and do so. 85081-87-285-9348 uh, is our outside of Bloomington number, wfiU.org/noon Edition. I wanted to read something from a Wall Street Journal editorial. Wall Street Journal is a little conservative, but – and get uh, Bryce and, and Eric's response. Uh, they flat out say, contrary to much union rhetoric, right-to-work laws don't ban or bust unions. They simply grant individual workers the right to join or not join, even once a workplace is organized by a union. Workers who decline to join the union can't be forced to have dues taken out of their paychecks and thus used to finance union political campaigns. Um, do you see this as a union busting measure
2: Bryce? 100%. This is there's nothing more I mean this is union busting 101. Uh essentially you are basically putting the share of the responsibility for your collective bargaining team to a very limited amount of people, and people can opt out. This is a redundant law. There's already federal legislation that says if you don't agree with the union, then you don't have to necessarily pay your dues to all their activities. You do have to pay fair share for the collective bargaining part. When you when you do, and I and this is evident on Indiana University campus, we, we represent 1,800 employees, but our membership is very a lot smaller than that. But we are extremely committed. Um, to the cause of unions. And so we, uh, you know, some of us go out and every single day defend the rights of our members and our non-members, and it puts a lot of stresses on, uh, on, on workers. Um, for instance, our average steward case has 10 or 15 ca- new cases that come in almost every month, um, and there's only a few people who are paying into the system to protect. Now, when it comes to collective bargaining, everyone wants to be a part of it, um, but, no, but not everyone wants to pay their fair share. And mm-hmm. so... This is to undermine unions, it's to divide employees and to make them less effective. Um, and it's to make more money. It's essentially asking people to work for less. Mm-hmm.
1: Eric, union busting? Uh, I disagree with The Wall Street Journal and Bryce on this one.
3: (laughs) I think, you know again, the use of words here is very interesting. The Wall Street Journal says it's simply an individual matter. That's clearly not the case. It's a matter of individual rights versus group rights, and people have very different ideas on how that should play out. Union busting, again, very interesting use of rhetoric. This this doesn't come close to union busting. It does undermine the power to some extent. Uh, The the law is somewhat redundant as – Price talked about it. Just it, it, "busting" is way too strong of a term. So I guess I disagree with both. I, going back to the earlier caller, I think you know, I think the ideal here would be right to work, but without forced representation by the union. The union should not be uh, uh, forced to represent uh, workers who are not members of the union. So, uh, to me, that's the ideal: is that you've got uh, the ability to collectively bargain, you've got right to work, but then the union should not be forced to represent those who don't want to or who are not participating in the union.
1: All right, we're going to go to the. Hmm. Go to the phones, and Dave. Dave, go ahead. Hello. Hello, Dave. Are you uh, Dave?
8: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I was talk- calling about the right to work. I own my own dump truck and participate in a state contract. I was forced to join the Teamsters Union. I have to pay. for Why? <laughs> quite-
1: we uh, seem you're, you're breaking up, Dave. I don't think we're going to be able to uh, to talk with you. But we at least got the point that you, for, in order to be to work on a state contract, you had to join the team's, Teamsters Union. Price, yeah, you Dave,
0: maybe you could call back from a landline so we could hear you a little better. Thanks.
1: Well, when
2: there's collective bargaining, yes, individuals have to uh, join the union. Um, you know, my grandfather actually, I'm from Springfield, Ohio, to own a printing shop, and uh, this and the printers in his shop wanted to become unionized, and my uncle wanted to j- just work at the company. Well, my uncle had to join the union to work in my grandfather's private uh, private business. Um, my, I would say my grandfather wasn't very happy, but at the same time, he realized that there's a lot more to allowing these employees to gather and collect a bargain, and, th- and that people should pay fairly into a system that has the workers' interests first. Um, and I believe that unions really put the workers' interests first, um, and, and, and that's the nature of collective bargaining. We make sacrifices uh, to be a part of something that um, can make the working conditions uh, better and safer
1: for everyone.
0: Should mm-hmm. we go to John? Yeah,
1: let's go to John next. John? Do we have John?
5: Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, great. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people forget uh, just what, uh, what it took for unions to uh, uh, to achieve, uh, you know, a level of confidence in our society, and uh, and what unions did for uh, for raising uh, the uh, both the uh, wages and as well as the uh, the level of uh, general level of living for all Americans, um, and these tactics we're seeing now uh, uh, that uh, might be characterized as union busting, you know, have certainly are certainly not new. Uh, we certainly saw it uh, through most of the 20th century. Um, what seems to be different now is that unions, <laughs> I think, in an effort to be civil, uh, simply aren't uh, aren't characterizing the opposition the way it to be characterized in the past. I think, given the disparities now in uh, relative income uh, in this country, uh, you know, in the past uh, you know, the wealthy, you know, were labeled uh, with such terms as as parasite and what have you. <laughs> And I think today we're seeing them essentially parasites in our economy, sucking the lifeblood out for many workers. Um, and I, for one, am, am actually looking for a, a less uh, civility and more honest talk about what's really going on in the country. Um, again, looking to the past, uh, you know, as an example, um, unions had to fight, fight hard to, uh, to raise uh, the level of, uh, of living for not only its members, but for all Americans. And uh, and they should be proud of that. And uh, an Americans should be reminded of that, in my opinion.
1: All right. Thanks, John. Thanks for the comments. And we've got Dave.
3: As I say, that – I mean, I would support unions. If you go back into the past, the fancy term for this is monopsony power, the opposite of monopoly power. But where firms have. A lot of power over workers, where they're the only place in town, the 19th century coal mine, you know, if you go back 100 years, then workers are in a very vulnerable position, and unions are a very helpful remedy to balance that off. In contemporary times, though, much more competitive labor markets, and, you know, then you've got to come up with some anecdotal things, like the Polish labor unions against the communist government in 1980, or... Uh, sports where you've got the unions uh, going up against the owners, the owners form collusion, the owner, uh, the uh, ball players form collusion. So, in the face of this thing called monopsony power, then unions are a very useful corrective. But in competitive labor markets, uh, not so much.
1: Okay, we've got Dave back. I think let's go to Dave. Dave, are you back?
8: I just, I just feel like. Especially on these state contracts, it's a pay-to-play. You pay the Teamsters, or you don't play. And and not only did I have to sign the contract, but things that were at my discretion as to how I paid my benefits. They told me it is your choice, but if you choose to pay hourly instead of weekly, we won't let you work. I mean, so there. I think you know it's coercion. Mm-hmm. Not only pay-to-play and coercion.
1: Do you mind telling us how much you have to pay the the Teamsters? I have-
8: I have to pay, if I work 15 minutes, I have to pay the Teamsters, uh, $280 for health insurance every week. And I have to pay them $130 for, uh,
5: pension mm-hmm.
8: every week. If I work 15 minutes or if I work 60 hours. Okay. The con the statewide contract says that I can pay hourly or I can pay weekly. But they said, if we don't, if we don't get your $410 a week, you're not going to
3: work.
2: Mm-hmm. And you know, each union is, um, is different. I mean, I don't know about this particular case, but at Indiana University, we pay two hours of our salary per month. So, uh, you know, uh, well, some
6: and, and, and the
8: thing with this, I on the dump truck because it's seasonal. We will never people on in a dump truck. Very, very few of them even qualify enough consecutive quarters to get the insurance. But the teamsters still want their money, mm-hmm. and and I I pointed out to the teamsters that. I have another driver that would like to work, but I cannot, you know, when it comes around to Wednesday and he had not worked, well, he's not going to work Thursday and Friday because I can't afford to pay them $400. And they said, well, they didn't care. It was too hard for them to keep track of it the other way. They they weren't interested in the member. They were, were interested in them having to work too hard.
1: All right, and Dave. Dave. We're running out of time here, Dave, so thanks, thanks, thanks for calling your comments. Uh, we've got uh, about 40 seconds to go. Roger, do you have a quick comment? Nope. All right, I think we're going to have to – Roger, do you have a very quick comment?
8: Yeah, very quick comment. Respectful disagreement with your producer's dictionary. It's only in France or Belgian politics that a group acting as a group toward a common goal – and it's a capitalized cartel that it actually means that. Otherwise, it's an international syndicate that's trying to control both wages and
1: output. All right. We're going to have to go now. Thanks a lot for that sure. uh, clarification. Thank you to uh, Bryce Smedley. Thanks for having to me. To Morgan Hutton, to Eric To Mary Catherine Carmichael, to Regan McCarthy, our producer and engineer Mike Baskash. I'm Bob Salzberg.